we were like four or five years into our marriage and we had had issues with infertility. We were really just struggling in the midst of that. We were sitting in our living room and just dreaming about our family. And I asked if he had ever wanted to adopt. Prior to marriage, we had never talked about adoption uh, at all. And in my heart, I had always wanted to, so I was nervous to ask this question because if he said no, I would be really sad. And lo and behold, like we both had been thinking about adopting since we were each in high school. It felt like after that conversation, like we actually, uh, you were pregnant with our daughter. After we had Vera, you were adamant about adopting our next child. So we pursued private adoption. We started going to some meetings and meeting with some agencies. A friend of mine, him and his wife were looking into adoption and, and uh, they went to a conference and there was a speaker there that talked about foster care. And he just said, um, there's some of you in this room that are here to adopt and you're like tuning me out because you're just like, why is this guy up here speaking about foster care? And, and there's no way I could like foster kids because I couldn't grasp them like leaving my home. And, and then he just said, those are the types of parents that those kids need in their life. So right now we are parenting a two-year-old, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Knowing that God called us into this and we're holding it loosely, whatever it looks like, the things that we know we can control are how we love and care for the kids that are placed within our home. There is beauty in it, but there is a lot of chaos in it as well. When you get into the hardships and you want to quit, like the gospel is what's going to sustain you through it. God is gonna be the one that's gonna sustain you through it. You're brought to some of your hardest moments with like no place to turn but God, but then you also see the progress and the, the steps that these boys have made in our care and how rewarding it is for these boys to like be able to run around and jump around like normal boys. Our community has reminded us of why we do it when we have wanted to tap out and say we are done and that has been so impactful the community we've made here at Traders Point we have a care community that supports us they help provide a meal for us once a week so one less night I have to worry about what our family is having they help with child care uh, which is so important just to be able to you know, have a break or run an errand or go to an appointment or go to a training. All of that is so important to have that support. Without our care community, I honestly don't know if we would still be in the midst of this two-year placement. It took that heavy weight from us and made it a little lighter. The whole process is just a glimpse of what the gospel is in a sense of how God adopts us as children. It puts kind of this new perspective on it because you see your own brokenness and why would God adopt me as a child? Because like I have so much that's just such a mess and so ugly, but despite all of that, God looks past that and through that and accepts us and loves us. God left heaven and stepped into our brokenness. And because of that, we wanna do the same. There's one more quote that I want to read. I just feel like this sums up why we do 
what we do. I could be sitting on the sidelines in blissful ignorance of the brokenness that surrounds me, enjoying the wholeness of a sweet and sheltered life, missing out on the beauty of breaking off pieces of my heart and my life to make another whole, missing out on the joy of offering those broken pieces in worship to my Savior. Hey, let's give it up for Josh and Emily. Uh, we're really grateful that they would invite us into their home and share a little bit of their story with us. And uh, today is uh, the day that we are just acknowledging is Stand Sunday. And that's the day when churches all over the nation choose to stand for vulnerable children in their communities. And uh, it is not too uh, drastic of a word to say that what we are facing is not a foster and adoption care need, it's a crisis. And uh, our state of Indiana, we rank number five in the nation for the number of kids in foster care. And uh, there are roughly 12,000 children that are in the foster care system awaiting placement. And the gospel message essentially says that our God is a father to the fatherless. And because of his care and his justice and his mercy, he adopts us into his family. And that's what motivates us to do the same. And so I just want you at the very least to be aware of our FAM ministry, our foster and adoption ministry. Uh, you can go to the website, tpcc.org slash FAM. Uh, we have uh, people in uh, the lobbies of all of our locations at a table that would love to just meet you, answer any questions that you might have, or just help you to know what your next steps are. And for some of you, as you're watching that, you, you might feel a little bit like they felt, you know, it's like, uh, is God really calling me to this? Or maybe it's kind of pulling on your heartstrings and you're wondering about it. And we would love to talk to you just about what those next steps are. Maybe for you, it's like you don't feel called to foster or adopt, but to be a part of a care community and to come around those um, who do. And so uh, I want to encourage you to check that out. At the very least, uh, be praying about that ministry and be aware. Uh, your generosity helps us to resource uh, this really, really incredible uh, ministry that we have. Well, um, today I'm really glad that you're here because we're starting a brand new series of messages called Love and War. And uh, we're working our way through this um, little book at the very end of the New Testament um, known as 1 John. Now, it's not John's gospel, it's John's epistle. And it doesn't get quite as much airplay as his gospel. And uh, if you're somewhat, I remember whenever I was kind of like new to faith and new to Bible study, I remember one of the many questions that I had when it came to this is I looked at the New Testament and I saw all these like books that had John's name in it. And I was like, what's up with all the Johns? You know, it's like, and I got to the end, it's like first, second, third John. I was like, what is this, a race? You know, did he take all three spots on the podium? And what is an epistle anyway? Is that a wife of an apostle? And I just had all these questions that maybe some of you have as well. And if I could just kind of clear some of that up as we kind of dive into our study. Uh, John uh, was a, one of Jesus' disciples. He was actually part of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And uh, so John, a little bit later in life, uh, writes his gospel. And a gospel is just simply the biography of the life and ministry of Jesus. And John's gospel is a bit different than the other three. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of write their gospels almost immediate. And I say immediate, like just within a handful of years of Jesus' resurrection. John took his time and he waited. Uh, John um, was a bit of an older man by the time he wrote his gospel. And he really wants us to be introduced to the person of Jesus and to understand how it is that he reconciles us to God. Which is why anytime anybody ever comes up to me and they're like, I'm a little bit intimidated by the Bible and where should I begin as I read? I'll almost always point them to the Gospel 
of John. Uh, but then a little bit later, John writes um, a series of letters to the church generally known as an epistle. That's what an epistle is, just a fancy word for letter. And um, the, the one that he writes gets divided up into three, and first, second, third John. We're going to take a look and study the book of First John together just at the first part of the summer. And we're just going to kind of take it, you know, verse by verse, line by line. And I'm just going to kind of read, explain, and, and apply. And we're calling this series Love and War, which might sound a little bit strange because it may seem as if those two words don't belong together. You know, kind of like, you know, jumbo shrimp or virtual reality or working vacation. You're like, these words don't belong together. But I think you're gonna see as we study together um, why we're putting them together. Uh, for starters, one of John's uh, characteristics in his writing is that he loves to use sharp contrasts to make his point. Uh, maybe one of the uh, clearest ones, and we're actually gonna see it in our passage today. We see it all over the gospel of John is he just uses the words light and darkness. These contrasts to help us understand. Love is a big theme for John. Uh, John would describe himself as the disciple Jesus loved. John was the guy that arguably wrote one of the most well-known verses known in all of the Bible. It's probably one of the very first verses you memorized as a kid. It's a verse that somehow has made it onto the chests of shirtless men with beer bellies and end zones of football games. You know, John 3, 16, you know, for God so loved the world. That, that John penned those words. But, but John also wants us to see, primarily in his epistle, that we are at war. Like John wants us to understand that there is a war that we are in. And if you're taking notes, there's like three aspects of this war. There's the spiritual war, the tangible war, and the internal war. There is the, the war that's going on behind the scenes, even as we speak the principalities and powers of darkness in this evil world, which then lends itself to the tangible war, war that we see in front of us and on the news. And we see things like literal wars and we see road rage and abuse and school shootings. All of these things are a result of the spiritual war that we are in. And then there's the internal war that is being waged uh, against you and, in, and uh, uh, in your mind. So in your body and in your mind. So we would even say like illness and disease and things like ALS, like the battle that is raging in our bodies against us, but then also the battle in our minds, habits, addictions, and temptations. And so we're at war. And John wants us to make, John wants to make us aware of this war because we cannot win a war we are not aware of. But John writes his epistle, not only to just make us aware of it, but to reassure us of how the war has been won and can be won. And if I could sum up 1 John like in two words, I might use the word assurance. That's a big, big word. John wants to provide us assurance, but then also the word convicting. I don't know if you guys read ahead. But anytime I read 1 John, and I did it just in the previous weeks as we were preparing for this series, I read 1 John maybe more so than any other book in the Bible. And it's wild how in the same sentence that John writes, I can be so comforted and encouraged, and yet by the time he finishes the verse, I am equally just as challenged and convicted. You know, I usually uh, try to have my message written by Wednesday at noon. Uh, primarily because uh, I want to just kind of put that thing in the crock pot and let it simmer for a few days. 
And uh, the other reason is because I have a production meeting at one o'clock and they want the notes. All right, so a couple of reasons there. And uh, uh, usually when I walk into that production meeting at one o'clock on Wednesdays, I'm a little bit disheveled because I've just finished the message about an hour before and I'm trying to work it all out. And man, that was the case this week. I just kind of walked in and I'm kind of meeting with the worship team. We're kind of walking our way through the message. And, and at one point in the message, I just said, you know, guys, I'm just like really convicted as I like am preparing this because this is one of these messages where I'm like, man, I need to make sure that I'm doing this before I preach it. It's this idea, I just, I just, I just need you to know this, that I, um, I'm going to preach uh, chapter one today and John just says some things that are so encouraging and at the same time so equally convicting. And I don't have a problem preaching things that make us feel convicted because that's where change comes from. But I do want to make sure that I, I use the right tone. I, I do want you to know that I'm not saying this at you, I'm saying this with you. I do want you to say that I say some of these things like with a broken heart for, for the struggle that I'm in and the struggle that you're in. And to recognize that if uh, I step on your toes, uh, I reassure you, God has already smashed my feet. And so uh, as we kind of uh, dive into this uh, together, uh, just about everybody that I know in their walk with Jesus, and I've certainly been there, has wondered at one time or another if their relationship with Jesus is legit. And we don't say it like that. We oftentimes say it like this. We, we kind of say it with Christianese. We say things like, well, you know, it's like, I, I wonder if I'm, uh, you know, really saved. You know, I, I wonder if, my, uh, if I really have been reconciled with God or was that just emotionalism? Is the prayer that I prayed as a kid, does it still stick today as an adult? So some of you maybe uh, a few weeks ago at Easter, um, you were the ones that maybe stood to your feet for the very first time and you said out loud for the very first time that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you followed me out those doors and you were baptized. And since then, your life has been kind of messy. And it's caused some doubts in your mind. Like, was I really sincere? And uh, does God still love me? Maybe he loves me, but he doesn't really like me right now. You know, because I've promised him some things, but I keep breaking my promises. And how, how do I know if I'm still in a relationship with Jesus? How do I know if God's grace has really covered me? And this question of assurance um, is on all of our minds at some time or another. Now, most of the epistles in the New Testament, the names of the epistles uh, have the, the city or the geographic region that they were originally written to. What I mean by that is, the reason why the book of Galatians is called Galatians is because the letter was written to the Christians in Galatia. But if you notice, 1 John is an epistle that doesn't have a city or a geographic region attached to it. It's got John's name. And I think part of the reason why is because John knows that this question of assurance is something that every Christian across all time asks to some degree. And John wants to speak to it. So today, John is going to share with us some of the best news Ever. In fact, I've titled this message, The Best News Ever. How many of you love good news? Uh, how many of you know that oftentimes good news usually doesn't come without some bad? It's like, we don't like that part of it. Anytime anybody comes up to me and they're like, hey, I've got some good news and some bad news. What do you want first? I don't know about you. I'm always like, give me the bad news first because I want to end on the good. And I, I, my theory is, is that the good news will make the, or the bad news will make the good news all the better. And can I say that the gospel message is oftentimes known as good news because it is. But here's the thing. If you find yourself unimpressed, tired of, or bored with the gospel, it's likely because you've forgotten how bad the bad news really is. In order for the good news to be really, really good, we got to understand the two. John navigates this so well. And so with that set up, let's jump into verse 1 of chapter 1. John writes this. He says, we 
proclaim to you. He, he's declaring something here. He's going to use that word three times here in just these first few verses. We proclaim to you the, the one who existed from the beginning. Now, if you go to John's gospel, you see how similar he starts his gospel and how similar he starts this. He begins his gospel. Within the beginning was the word and the word is with God and the word was God. And John takes us all the way back to the beginning and says, Jesus has existed from the beginning. And he says, this is somebody that we've heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and we touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us. Who is us? He's talking about the disciples, the, the apostles. And he says, and we have seen him. Uh, and now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. What's John doing here? Well, well, John wants us to know that he's getting ready to say some relatively heavy things. And he's saying, hey, listen, the authority by which I say what I'm going to say to you is not because I've got this all figured out. It's not because I'm smarter than anybody else. It's not because I've got this like philosophy of life that is just really dialed in. He's saying the authority by which I'm getting ready to say this to you is because I was with Jesus and I heard Jesus and I saw Jesus do the miraculous. Not only that, but I touched his resurrected body. See, the apostles never tried to draw their authority from the fact that they thought Christianity was the best explanation of the world, although we could make that argument, like we could go there. That's just not what they lead with. They said that the reason why we have this authority is because Jesus verified who he was through the miraculous. Like the proof for them wasn't in his teachings or what others said about him, but it was their witness to his power. They were like, guys, what we're getting ready to proclaim to you, like we saw it. Like we, we, we saw something that was almost unexplainable, but it was undeniable. One of my favorite examples of this is actually in John's gospel. It's in John chapter nine. And there was a Jewish man born uh, blind. And uh, the religious leaders got, uh, thought that that was a sign of God's judgment upon him. That, you know, his family members had sinned or something had gone wrong. So he was born blind. And uh, Jesus didn't think so. Uh, Jesus meets the guy and he heals him which is incredible. This guy has been blind his whole life. Jesus heals him and now the guy can see. This is one of the mind-blowing things to me about the religious leaders of the day is that they were so um, distracted and unaffected by that that they meet this guy and instead of celebrating the fact that he could see, they confront him and they say, this just can't be. They're like, you know, Jesus teaches false things so therefore he couldn't have healed you. And I love this guy's simple response. It's found in chapter 9, verse 25. Uh, I don't know about you. I just imagine this guy says this with a country accent. I don't know why I think that. I I just think that's what he says. He's like, well, you know, I don't know whether he's a sinner. But I know this. I was blind and now I can see. You know, that's just like, that's just kind of how I kind of envision it. And and I can say that because I'm from rural Missouri. All right. That's just how we talk. And I love his response. He's just like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. But here's what I know. I know right now, like, the unexplainable is undeniable. I was blind a second ago, and now I can see. 
And I just want to submit to you that that is a really good definition of faith. Faith is not checking your logic at the door. Faith is not, you know, naive thing. You know, faith is not just like, well, I just, you know, want it to be true, so I'm going to make it true. No, faith is when the unexplainable meets the undeniable. And right now there are a lot of things about Christianity that are challenging to believe. And if you don't say that, then you're not being intellectually honest. There's some challenge, I mean, namely the resurrection. That's hard to believe. There's a lot of things that what Christ has called us to that at times can maybe be hard to believe or hard to do. And maybe for, for you right now today, I'm speaking to somebody today who's maybe kicking the tires on faith. Like you really kind of want this to be true. Like you, you can't bring yourself to totally dismiss God and just say he doesn't exist. There's very, very few pure atheists out there. Like statistically, it's like, you know, over 90% of us say we believe in some kind of God. So very few of us can dismiss God. It's just that we reshape him. It's like, well, I don't necessarily like this kind of God, so I'm going to reshape him to be a little bit more palatable to me. And maybe for you, you're like coming in here and you're like, well, I kind of really want this to be true, but I've got a list of objections as long as my arm. And I've got some things that need to be reconciled first and some things that need to make sense to me first. And I want you to know that your questions are welcome and your objections are welcome. God can handle them. And likely it's not anything he hasn't heard before. But here's what I want to lovingly challenge you with. Is that um, don't, as you, as you kind of lead with these objections, as you kind of lead with these doubts, and man, there's some really, really good ones. And maybe for you, you're like, you know what, man, the thing that's really keeping me from, from faith is, you know, morality just kind of seems so offensive and so repressive, especially in our day and age. Or what about the problem of evil and suffering? How do we reconcile that with a good God? Or what about the injustices that have been done throughout history and even today in the name of Christianity? Or you know what, I, I, it's just the Bible for me. Like, I don't know that I can trust the authority of the Bible. Hasn't it been written and rewritten over the centuries by men who had an agenda? And by the way, these are all really, really good objections that have really, really good answers. In fact, in uh, the month of August, I'm gonna do a series on this called Deconstruct, Reconstruct, because it seems like everybody's deconstructing their faith. And I don't think that's always bad, just as long as you reconstruct something. And we're going to actually talk about some of these things. We're going to actually talk about the authority of the Bible. And we're going to talk about injustices. And we're going to talk about uh, sexuality. And it's going to be fun. What can go wrong? Right? So, so all that's coming up like in, in August. And, and so kind of tuck that away, earmark that. But, and, and all those are really, really good, the really, really good answers. Here, here's the deal, though, is that if you say, if you're the kind of person that says, this needs to make logical sense to me first before I submit my life to Christ, you likely won't. I'm not saying never. But I'm saying you likely well, you're actually coming to God and saying, God, you need to come to me on my agenda. It's got to make sense first. See, here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm not asking you to do anything drastic today. I'm not necessarily asking you to, you know, pray or prayer or be baptized or even, you know, submit that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life just yet. Here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to ask yourself this question. Am I willing to doubt my doubts? I've got some doubts. Man, good. So do I. That actually precedes faith. So am I willing to doubt my doubts? And we come to this place where the unexplainable uh, meets the undeniable. And I've had this encounter with, with God. See, um, in the remainder of the, the chapter, John is going to address a, a question that Moses and David and Jesus and, and Paul, they, they all address. And it's just simply this question. How can a sinful person come into a right relationship with a holy and just 
God. And one of the things that John is going to do is he's going to take aim at religion, which might be surprising to some of you because you're like, well, isn't that what we're doing right now? And I would say no. There's a difference between uh, religion and what we might call like um, religiosity or this idea that I'm trying to earn my way to God or I'm trying to um, uh, earn a right standing with God with moral behavior, which I would submit to you is the root of most church hurt. Is when a group of Christians forget their need of grace and they no longer give it to others. Or, or we, we got saved by grace through faith on the day of our conversion and we left grace there and then we started living by works. And when you start to live by works, it will either crush you in a sense of shame because you can never do enough or it'll lead to a sense of spiritual pride because you'll start comparing yourself to others and looking down upon others. John says it can't be religion. See, see, please know, I always know that somebody's not really in a relationship with Jesus. Whenever I say, hey, man, tell, you about, tell me about your uh, you know, walk with God. And they answer with the denomination of the church they grew up in. It's like, tell me about your walk with God. Oh, I grew up Baptist, which I did, by the way. It's like, oh, yeah, I'm Methodist, oh, Catholic. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff. But that's not what I asked. I'm not asking about the denomination you grew up in. I'm asking about, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And religion is just as much an enemy of the cross of Jesus as secularism. And what I mean by that is the crucifixion of Jesus was a partnership between the secular and the religious groups of the day. Which means that even today, religiosity is every bit as much of an enemy of Jesus as secularism. See, just because you're religious doesn't mean you, you know God. And so... John's got to get us lost before he can get us saved. And what he's going to say next is going to sting a little bit, but I want you to know that it's a good kind of sting. You know, it's kind of like if you've got to have surgery, um, when the surgeon walks into the operating room with a hatchet, that's not a good sign. Like you, you should probably think about getting another surgeon. But if the surgeon walks in with a local anesthetic and a scalpel, then you submit yourself to that surgeon because he's cutting for your good. And this is the tone that John writes with, and it's certainly the tone I want to preach with. Look at what he says in verse 5. He goes, this is the message that we heard from Jesus and now declare to you. I love that because John's simply saying, I'm just the mailman. I'm just delivering the mail that's been given to me. And then he uses these sharp contrasts right here. He goes, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are Lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. And, and I, I love how he puts that there, this idea of practice. Like there's no way that you can justify yourself in the, in the eyes of a holy God. We are saved by grace through faith. And then we start practicing righteousness. We start practicing holiness. We start practicing truth, knowing that when we hit a foul ball, God's grace is there to, to catch us. And it just takes repetitions. You know, you're not going to get good at a golf swing by just thinking about golf. You got to actually go out and you got to do it. And the same thing is true with righteousness and truth. He goes, we begin to, to, to practice this. And he says, we're actually lying. Well, who are we lying to? Well, I think it's implied that we're lying to ourselves. Certainly it could be that we're lying to others. We could be lying to God. If we, if we say we're in fellowship with God, but we're not practicing the truth. What does that look like? Well, it means that we really don't, Know God if we are willfully and defiantly 
pursuing what God calls sin. Now I want to say that by also saying simply this. After your conversion, you and I, we are going to continue to sin. We are all broken sinners. We're going to sin on a daily, if not hourly, basis. What he's talking about here is premeditative sin. Do you know what that is? It's when you, like, you know it's a sin, but you're going to go ahead and do it anyway because you want to. And, uh, you know, God will forgive me in the words of author Philip Yancey because that's his job. And so you just kind of do that and over and over and over again. And, or you say, you know what, I, I don't really know that it's a sin. After a while, you begin to move it out of that category. And you just say, all I'm doing is following my heart. What's wrong with that? Or I'm going to act on my desires. Maybe God gave me these desires. And so I'm just acting on them. And it so clearly violates God's best for you. Here, here's how you know you're really following God. It's, it's how you feel about his commands. Are they cumbersome? Are they lame? Do you feel like they're old-fashioned? David writes this of God's commands in Psalm chapter 19, verse 8. He says, God's commands are right and bring joy to the heart. They are clear and they give insight for living. Is that how you feel about them? Or are you like, ah, I don't know that it means that anymore. Or let me kind of do some, you know, uh, uh, some hula hoop, you know, around this to try to figure out a way around it. So how, how do we stay in spiritual darkness? How are we lying to ourselves? Three common ways, if you're taking notes, the first one is simply this. Believing in God without repenting before God. Statistically, over 90% of us say that we believe in God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've turned our lives around. The word repentance is metanoia. It's this idea that it's a change in perspective. It's a, it's a change by the direction in which I'm, I'm heading. But, in, but instead, what we really want to do, what our flesh wants to do, instead of submitting to Jesus, like submitting to Jesus as Savior, man, that's great. I don't know if anybody has a problem with that. Who doesn't want to be saved? But submitting to Jesus as Lord, most of our issues that we get tripped up in, it's a lordship issue. I just simply don't like what he asks me to do. And so Jesus, I want you to be savior of my life. I remember being in that baptistry and I was explaining to a lady one time, I said, hey, uh, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and you are accepting him as savior today? And she was like, yes. And I said, but are you also making him lord over your life? And she looked at me and she goes, what's that mean? And I said, it simply means that you're not going to no longer treat Jesus like a salad bar where you pick this and this, but you're going to submit every area of your life, your bank account and your bedroom to the Lordship of Jesus. She said, yes, but not nearly as enthusiastically. <laughs> that's hard, isn't it? But can I tell you, you can't get the one without the other. Repentance is what God desires for us. Belief is great. That's just the first step. The Bible says the demons believe. That doesn't mean they're saved. When Jesus was preaching the gospel in Mark chapter 1, repentance was the first response that he called for. Peter, when uh, he was preaching in Acts chapter 2, and they said, well, what do we do? He, he said, repent. And um, Paul said that God has commanded everyone everywhere to do this is what he's asked us to do now that we know that Jesus has been resurrected, and that is to repent, Acts chapter 17. Now, please understand, we are not saved by the things we do. We are saved by grace through faith, through the finished work of Jesus. Therefore, we do those things. 
It is out of a new identity and a transformation. And, and actually at first it seems a little bit harsh and abrasive. It's kind of like any of you ever go to a, a, a summertime matinee in the middle of the afternoon and it's air conditioned and it's dark and you're watching the movie and then you get done and you leave the exit straight from the theater into the parking lot and it's a sunny day. And it's just like, ah, it's just like so harsh and abrasive and you want to shield your eyes or maybe even run back in. But if you actually, if you stay out there long enough, you begin to acclimate and then you begin to see that the light is good. That is the exact same way when we step into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, praying a prayer with no accompanying life change. George Barner reports that about 50% of Americans say that they prayed some kind of sinner's prayer, even though half uh, show no fruit, show no regular presence of any kind in a church, have lifestyles and worldviews that in no way differ of those outside of the Christian faith. See, um, if I had a chair up here and I said, man, I believe in this chair. This is the best chair in the world. Well, Aaron, would you sit in it? Well, I really don't want to. I don't really know if it will carry my weight. Then that's not really trust. See, trust in Jesus is when we say, you know what, this maybe doesn't even make sense to me at first, but I trust that your way is good, that, that you have my best interests in mind. Here's the third thing, being casual rather than confessional about our sin. Can I just ask you right now, when it comes to personal sin in your life, are you casual about it or are you confessional? And it's easy to treat it flippantly or dismissively, especially in the days in which we live. But maybe we know something that the Bible says, but we don't like it and we don't agree with it. And or it's inconvenience, and so we rationalize it, change it, or dismiss it. But you can't say that you know Jesus is Savior and Lord and then continue to embrace what he did for you on a cross. You see, we are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And he's not offering you tips and suggestions on how to be a better version of you, but it is an invitation to come and be transformed into a whole new version of you. And by the way, your flesh will disagree with what Jesus asks of you. If you don't, then you're probably not being honest with yourself. But if you insist, here's the thing. If you insist on it all making sense to you at first, or you agree, like, okay, Jesus, I'll submit this area of my life to you just as long as I understand it. That's not lordship, that's bargaining. And this doesn't mean that we will never sin and fall. And we will all the time. It is almost guaranteed. Here's what I'm asking. What is your internal response when you do? Do you hide it? Do you conceal it? Do you rationalize it? Do you explain it away? Or is there a posture of confession and surrender and repentance? And can I just tell you that the waves of God's mercy are like the waves of a beach. They just keep rolling in. But you won't experience the waves unless you go down to the beach. And that's what confession and repentance is. That he will receive you no matter what. So here's the bad news. You don't know, you can't really know God if you are willfully continuing and harboring sin. But the good news is you do know him if you're always humbling yourself into a posture of surrender. Look at what John writes in verse seven. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Man, that's the best news ever, but it's couched in a phrase that is so convicting. 
And he says here that we've got to step into the light. Like I've got to grasp how sinful I really am before I begin to see how gracious God really is. Now, now here's the challenge. I remember whenever I first started preaching and uh, one of the things that I learned right away is that some messages get you applauded like a hero and other messages pounded like a nail. And I was like, I just learned this right away. I was like, man, when I preach grace and forgiveness, I get applauded. I say things like, we're saved by grace through faith. Amen, pastor. I say things like, hey, man, no matter what, no matter who you are, God's grace is there for you. The the ground of the foot of the cross is level for everyone. And people cheer. But then you begin to, to talk about our need for grace and that we are sinners. Not as much. It's kind of like, um, any of you ever trained a puppy? And you just applaud the puppy, and the puppy's going to learn that behavior. Now, here's one of the things that I learned as a young preacher is that um, anytime I started to feel a little bit uncomfortable or insecure, especially in the message, I would just immediately run to grace. I would actually maybe take the, like the shortcut. I would hop over maybe some of the bad news just to get to grace. And I think I did people a disservice because in order for the good news to be good, you've got to understand what you need to be saved from. Francis Schaeffer, one of our country's greatest apologists, was once asked what he would do if he met a man on a train and had just one hour to talk to him about the gospel. Here's how he responded. I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative (laughs) to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then I'd take the last 10 to 15 minutes to preach the good news of the gospel. And then he says something that convicted me so much. He said, I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without taking the time to help them realize what they need to be saved from. Here's where I think that a lot of preachers and a lot of Christians misstep, though, is we get the tone wrong. And we say it at people instead of with people. We say it in a sense of superiority and judgmentalism rather than confessing to I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. So the bad news is that you don't know, you can't know God if you say you have no sin. You refuse to call it sin. You just call it preference. The good news, you do know him if you are deeply aware of your sinfulness. And the clearest sign that you are growing in your understanding of how God's grace works is not that you no longer sin, but it's you become acutely aware of how much sin has pervaded your heart. Man, I'm so grateful for the weather right now. Can I get a good amen? All right, like I looked at the forecast for the next 10 days. We got lots of sunshine, 70, 80 degree weather. Those of you that are watching from, you know, tropical places and on the coast, you know, you know, just know that for us, the months of May and June is God's redemption for us wandering in the wilderness of the winter for all these years, these months. Now, here's the thing, man. Can you think back on those really dark, dreary winter days? I uh, fail to see how dirty the dashboard of my truck gets. Like there's just this like thick layer of dust. I don't even see it because it's like so dark and dreary. And then you get like a really bright, sunshiny day. And I'm like, oh, there it is. And right there is an opportunity to clean the dashboard rather than to say, well, it's not that bad. So the closer you get to God, the closer you come into the light, when you drag your sin kicking and screaming into the light, you begin to recognize your dis- you don't feel holier. You recognize your need for the cleansing of God. I think a common misconception 
for a lot of people is they just think, well, the closer to God I get, the, close, the holier that I'll feel. But actually, in reality, we recognize our need for him. Isaiah says this so well. The prophet Isaiah, who's like nearly at the top of the pyramid of the spiritual and religious food chain, he's a prophet. And Isaiah says that he came close to God. And here was his response. Woe, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Man, that's how you know. Um, it's Peter. When he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, he fell to his face and said, away from me, I'm a sinful person. Man, you meet a Christian that has been following Jesus for 20, 30, 40 years, and they are humble and they recognize their need for grace and they are not harsh with you, then you know that that is a person that is walking with God. You meet a Christian that is judgmental and is harsh and is cold. That is the, they have all this knowledge of God, but it's not being translated through the heart. That is the equivalent of theological and spiritual BO. You ever been around somebody whose deodorant has failed them and they don't know it? I've met a lot of Christians that way where they think that, but, but, but their, their need for and their sense of God's grace has worn off. And John finally finishes with this in verse 9. But, one of the greatest buts in this letter. But if we confess, what's the opposite of confess? Conceal. He says, if we confess our sins to him, he is, this is the word, circle it, underline it, highlight it in your Bible. He is faithful. And God is faithful. He'll do what he said he'll do. God is not flaky. God does not miss appointments. God does not overlook it. He is faithful every time and he is just, which means that God will always do what is right to forgive us, not to condemn, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Guys, that is the best news ever. And it comes with this invitation to confess, not to conceal. And he says, if we claim we've not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. He is faith. If we are, here's, here's how I summarize that verse. If we are faithful to confess, he is faithful to forgive. So what do we do with this? Well, here's what I want to ask you to do. Here's just the application. Regardless of who you are today, I want to ask you to search your heart right now. I want to ask you to ask God to search your heart right now by his Holy Spirit. And which of these warnings that John gives today might be true of you? Are you right now willfully and defiantly continuing to sin? Maybe to the point that you wanted to change the definition of sin. You say, I don't think it's really sin. Are you justifying that behavior as not all that bad? Are you hiding and concealing or covering up sin rather than confessing? Maybe this, are you having a hard time believing that God's grace could actually cover you because you've brought the same sin into the light over and over and over again. And you're like, man, at some point, God's gotta just get exhausted with me. And I just want you to know that you can't out exhaust God's grace. He says, you just keep coming to me as often as you need and you confess and you ask for a heart change and a sense of transformation. A couple days ago, we lost one of, I believe, one of the, our modern spiritual giants of the faith. 
Tim Keller, a pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, a prolific author and writer who had this uncanny ability of taking really lofty, heady theological concepts and simplifying it in ways that you could grasp it and understand it. And as a young man, his writing impacted and shaped me so much. Like I used to just read his sermons and just watch how he unpacked the text. And he went home to be with the Lord a couple of days ago. And so I think it's kind of fitting to kind of end this on a Tim Keller quote. I love what he says. He says, the gospel requires you to believe two really difficult things at the same time. You are so bad. Jesus had to die for you. Like there's no other way for you to be justified in the eyes of a holy God. And yet he is so gracious and loving that he was glad to die for you. And if we're honest, we really don't like either of those statements. We don't wanna think of ourselves as that bad and it's hard to imagine God as that good. We kind of prefer the mushy middle where we're not that bad and God doesn't have to be that gracious. But that's the gospel message and it's why for many it's difficult to believe and why few actually do. And all that it requires is for you to surrender, not once, but on a continual basis, not part of you, but all of you. And you might be like, well, how do I, how do I even begin to do that? And, and one way in which you might begin to employ this into your life right now is just maybe every day on a daily basis, like when you get up and once you're awake, you know, once you have liquid Holy Spirit, you know, the coffee, and you get that into your system, then didn't you just kind of begin your day with this prayer? Lord, Lord God, I am a sinner. Like I sin all the time in my thoughts and my speech and what I do. And I need your forgiveness today and always. And so I start the day today asking for it now. And that'd be a great way to start the day. And you just begin to see conviction and repentance, not as something to run away from, but something to run to. You begin to see it as a gift. See, it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is with you. And I think oftentimes we begin to think that confession and repentance is God taking us out to the woodshed and giving us a real what for. But actually confession and repentance is more it's not a woodshed. It's more like a daily shower that you take. Stepping into the cleansing, gracious waters that Jesus offers. And he's cleansing you of your sin and clothing you with the fragrance of Christ. Second Peter says it so well. God is patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so I'm gonna give you the opportunity to, to do that now today to just simply confess and repent before him. So I wanna ask you, wherever you may be, if you're at one of our locations, you're in this room or online, wherever you're seated, would you just simply bow your heads and close your eyes just real quickly. And I want you to take both of your hands and just kind of extend them out in front of you, but close your fists. And I want this to be symbolic of the fact that maybe you're holding on to some sort of sin. Maybe you're holding on to something that you're concealing. Maybe it's something as I've been preaching, it's just, pierced your heart and convicted you. And maybe you've already cursed me under your breath. Maybe you've gotten a little bit angry. Maybe you've tried to figure out a, a way to, to navigate around this so you don't have to employ it. What is the thing you're holding on to? And I just simply want you to, in a spirit of humility, say, God, I confess this to you. I release this to you. And as you pray that, you just simply open up your hands, a symbolic of just releasing that. You're not gonna conceal it any longer. And if need be, perhaps you need to confess that 
to someone else. And here's what God says that he will do. He says, I'll be faithful to you. I'll be just to forgive and to cleanse. And today I wanna give you that opportunity to do so. And maybe as we sing this final song together, you might come to the altar. You might fall to your knees. You might confess before him asking that he would forgive because this is the best news ever. But before it can be good news, we have to feel the weight of the bad and how gracious our good God really is. Lord God, we come before you. I stand before you, a very, very sinful man. And I'm keenly aware of how far I drift from you and how rebellious I am and how crafty I am to try to circumnavigate your commands rather than to submit to them. And God, I pray that as a church, we would have a sweet, sweet spirit of your grace to know that it's not that we should love the sinner and hate the sin. It's that we should love the sinner and hate our own sin and then invite others to do the same knowing that your grace is as vast as the ocean. It's like just continual waves that never run out, but we've got to go to the beach in order to experience it. And so God, I pray that we would do that today. We know that you are faithful. And as a people, we confess. God, would you meet us right where we are at and give us the assurance that we are in right standing with you not because of what we do, but because of what you have done and continue to do on our behalf. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said.